The Stevens College MFA in TV and Screenwriting presents How I Wrote That. Hell of a deal. Go ahead and cry yourself to sleep if you don't know how you feel. Cause I'm on a mission to stay in motion. I'm on a mission to stay in motion. I'm on a mission to stay in motion like a cartwheel. Hello, everybody. We're here with How I Wrote That at Jim Henson Studios with the class of 2020. What's up, 2020? <laughs> wow. Y'all looking fresh. You're looking like you're about to graduate, like you're about to be ready to be up in the world. Yeah. Good to see you all. Um, and as you know, um, uh, Stevens College MFA in TV and screenwriting, we love to bring you the best of the best. And this is someone I not only know from their work, but I know in the real world, and I'm so happy to have you here with us. Please welcome Rachel Schuchert. <laughs> Rachel is a writer on GLOW. She's also the executive producer and showrunner of Babysitter's Club, which we can't wait to see. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for having me. Whew, we're so glad you're here. We're going to jump right in. I'm so glad to be here, surrounded by Muppet art. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Come see us in person. There's an amazing mural in the room and everything. Um, so I'd love to talk about, so we, technically, we've known each other since since like 20 years. 20 years. <laughs> maybe, maybe not quite. That's not great. Like, <laughs> but, yeah. but when you started writing out of undergrad, am I right you were writing books? Yes. Um, well, I, I've had kind of a circuitous path <laughs> to all of this. Um, when I graduated from undergrad, I was at Tisch um, at New York University for acting. But kind of halfway through, I started to just sort of personally shift my focus to writing, and specifically writing things that I thought that maybe I would perform. Um, and then the writing became much more creatively fulfilling for me than performing it, mm -hmm. and I kind of liked to see what other people would bring to it, and I liked getting to like sit in the audience and watch other people bring things to life. So I'd really kind of shifted my focus to playwriting, I guess, you know, on some level. And I went to Europe for a while, and I came back, and I'd written a couple plays, and we started to do them. Um, and the books that I started to write was not immediately out of undergrad, but, but kind of also around the same time when I was like back in New York and trying to figure out a way to like make a little bit of money. Mm -hmm. um, I started to write for blogs and magazines and things like that, you know, small pieces, essays, personal mm -hmm. essays, little bits of like film reviews and things like that. You know, you get like $100 here and $200 there and it would kind of piece it all together. And I started to write enough kind of personal essays for this website, Nerve, which was like a big website at the time um, that a lot of writers came through. And now I think it's defunct. But um, they were really nice to me. They let me publish a lot of personal essays. And um, that attracted the attention of a literary agent who helped me kind of put some of that together to a book proposal. So then I had like a book. I came out with a book of essays, which led to a memoir. Um, and when my memoir came out, it, it, it did well. Um, and it started to get some attention from film and television people in Hollywood, and um, so I started coming out here. And like, I would like take meetings for a week with you know a lot of different development executives and people, you know, production companies and a little bit of studios and things like that. And they were always like, "We love you. Let us know when you move to LA." Yeah. <laughs> um, and that went on for about two or three years until I actually moved to LA to kind of focus on film and television full time. Great. 
And you knew, well, at the time, so then how you knew, you were like, I'm going to, this television is where I need to put my focus. Well, kind of. I mean, it just seemed like such a tangible thing to be able to do because mm -hmm. it's very hard to make a living as a playwright. Right. Um, I was in a position where I needed to start to support my family. Um, and, you know, I had, I had agents, I had, I mean, I already had representation, like a lot of the work had been done. And I did have this body of work and this established reputation as a writer. And it's also, I think, for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so has really been kind of a fertile time in Hollywood for writers who come from different backgrounds to bring their perspective right. to television specifically because um, there's just so much more of it than there used to be and it, it, from so many more diverse perspectives and so much more stuff that's sort of specialized. And, you know, so I think that there has started to be a place for a lot of people who may not have been able to find a place in television writers' rooms maybe like in the 80s and 90s when it was pretty uniform and pretty male and pretty mm -hmm. white and pretty much network and that was it. Right. Um, so it, it seemed like an interesting thing to do. I had a lot of friends from New York, sort of playwrights and other theater people that I'd kind of come up with in the scene there who were starting to come out and get jobs writing for television. And um, so it was a pretty soft landing when I got here because I already knew so many people and, and I had agents and I had all of that stuff. Yeah. I don't know what it would have been like if I'd done it otherwise. But you know, I'd, I'd sort of came out here knowing that it would probably work out on some level, I guess. I had like laid the groundwork before right. I really got here. When you started meeting, first of all, with the agents and managers, and then when you had them and you were starting to go in the room, did they tell you what it was about your work that they responded to? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I, I suppose they did. <laughs> you know, I think um, people responded to the humor of it. They responded um, to my sort of like, I think one of the areas that I Selling is um, just like sort of character work and see, like specifically character kind of scene work, like really fleshing out characters. And I think that people responded to that, you know, mm -hmm. to just the sort of three dimensionality of it. Yeah. I hope. I mean, I also think they just responded to the fact. I mean, the truth is, I think um, I'm good in a meeting. I like, <laughs> you know, I just am. It's, you know, yeah. it's, and that is kind of like a skill that you have or you don't have, although I think that um, it can be developed just being like engaging and being a good talker, but also being a good listener and being fun and being like fun to be around mm -hmm. and you know, just sort of, it's sort of like, are you a good date? Are you someone that like people call again for a second date when you go on a first date? <laughs> yeah. It's very similar. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I always tend to get a second date. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, we've sat together, so we share a mutual best friend and we've sat together for many holiday meals. I usually like to be the one cracking most of the jokes at the table, unless I'm sitting across from Rachel. <laughs> and then I like to enjoy most of the jokes that are coming across. You really are so funny. And oh, thanks. The room lights up around you. It's lovely. So let's talk about getting in the room. Let's talk about Glow. Okay. Whoa. Glow is like so exciting to see when it hit the market because it was doing something so specific. And not just that women's bodies were being able to be physical, but that the writing was being layered with physical mm -hmm. things. So um, what season did you come in to Glow? I've been there since the beginning, wow. season one. Yeah, I'm the last writer standing on this last season except for Liz and Carly, who are the creators. Oh. So we're the, we're the original Glow <laughs> girls. So when you started the room, tell us about what it was like day one to walk in the room, know you were gonna do this show. Was it pitched to you? Did they give you a, a certain amount of information to prep with, or did you come in and just hit the ground running? Well, um, I, I'd read this, 
script, mm -hmm. the pilot. Um, you know, I, I was a little lucky in GLOW because Liz and Carly, Liz Playhive and Carly Mench, who are the creators and showrunners of GLOW, um, are friends of mine. They were friends of mine. We knew each other in New York. We've been friends for a long time. Um, so I felt very comfortable with them to begin with. And, um, and I knew that this, you know, I, I kind of had a little bit of an inside track just in terms of like knowing that this show had been sold and kind of where they were on staffing it. And I remember um, my agents being like, so we think this would be really good for you. And I was like, do you know them? I was like, I do know them and I would love to do it. But you know, it's always tricky when um, someone's a friend because it's like you kind of have the connection, but also like they're your friends. So like you don't want to be gross and yeah. like, <laughs> yes, it's yes. tricky. So. Um, but you know, my agent sent me the script, and um, and I loved it. Not, and I, I loved it. I really thought it was like one of the best pilots I'd ever read, and it also felt it was just very personal to me. It was the story of this like aspiring actress from Omaha, which is where I'm from, and, <laughs> and like, um, and it's very like show busy, which is something I really connect to. And the humor of it was so great, and this sort of like layered and perfect female characters and all of this stuff that I love was just there on the page and I was like, I have to do this, I have to get this job. Um, so I was like, yeah, submit me for it. And they did and you know, they were nice enough to call me in for a meeting and normally you know, you have like these meetings with showrunners after they've read you and sometimes they're people that you know but mostly they're not but this time they were. And I also knew Genji Kohan and Tara Herman, her producing partner, because I had a pilot and development with them at the time. So like I kind of knew the players, which always helps, um, unless they don't like you and then it's impossible. <laughs> Sometimes it's better to start over from scratch. <laughs> um, and I do remember going into that meeting and it was funny because it's like, it was sort of like a formal show and a meeting, but it's also like my friends. <laughs> and I remember um, sitting like with them at the table and just kind of talking about the pilot and all the stuff I liked about it. And I, I do remember saying to them something like, um, look, I know you're going to interview a lot of writers for this job, and some of them will definitely be better writers than I am, but you will not meet anybody with a more extensive working knowledge of the Omaha community theater scene in the 1980s <laughs> for this job. <laughs> and they laughed, you know, and then, um, and then I didn't hear from them for what, because, you know, sometimes you don't hear for like a few weeks, and then... Um, and I, I was a staff writer on Supergirl that year, and but it, it, like its fate for the second season was very iffy, and it ultimately wound up moving from CBS to CW. But I think technically I was in this place where like, you know, I had two years left on my contract, but I think enough time had passed that I was sort of like it was all very it, you know there's like those guild rules that are all sort of like amorphous, and normally they don't matter, but but so so basically I got offered the job. On Glow, I got offered a job on another network show, which has gone on to be massively successful. And sometimes in dark moments, I'm like, I would be so rich if I had taken that job. <laughs> and um, and I and then Supergirl was picked up like all on the same day, which was also the day of my sister's um, bridal sh no wedding baby shower. The day of her baby shower. <laughs> And I felt terrible because I spent the entire shower like on the phone. <laughs> like congratulations. Like, like a, well, no, just like with my agents and yeah. like trying to figure out what to do, like what, yeah. <laughs> what we were gonna take and what like what was happening. And it was really like that whole like staffing season, you know. And with streaming shows, which Glow is, it doesn't always line up with the network staffing season because they mm -hmm. kind of are on more of a rolling schedule. But um, this one, it was like all at the same time. This we just wound up starting at that time. So I just remember feeling like really overwhelmed. It's, it is, it feels a little like, um, 
What's the one that has a draft? Does the NFL have a draft? Is NFL's football? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They have. Does they also have one? Head coaches. Those drafts where like you're like in the thing and then you get picked for the and you're like the number yeah. one two. It feels like that. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, it was just like a very crazy day, and ultimately I decided that Glow was you know it's like friends it was just so totally in my wheelhouse and exactly the kind of thing I wanted to be doing and the kind of show I wanted to be making and it was just a dream job in so many ways so I was very very excited to get to take it and get to start on it and um, and it didn't disappoint yeah what's it like to write the physical in is that something you like think the about? wrestling mm -hmm. um, well it's funny that you say that I I had worked on Supergirl for this season before at Glow, um, you know, and she has all these like fight scenes and things. And what I kind of learned from writing those is that you, you, they're sort of broad strokes. Like, you know, like you would write things like Supergirl and Reactron soar up to the sky <laughs> together. Uh, he throws a punch, then she throws a punch. They trade bowls. She shoots. She they trade blows. She shoots the things out of her eyes like that. But it's not like you're not like storyboarding it beat mm -hmm. for beat like in the script. And in Glow, the wrestling is much the same. You know, the the wrestling. I think we have an idea of what needs to happen in the match. We know kind of how it begins. We know how it ends. We know what little scenelets are kind of happening in and around it that further our larger story and not just the wrestling of it. And then you just you just kind of put it together. But but you don't write in like move after move after move. It's not like you're right. writing choreography, right. if that makes sense. And um, Chavo Guerrero, who is our incredible wrestling coordinator on GLOW, and Shauna Duggins, who's our incredible stunt coordinator, um, who won an Emmy, actually, for stunt coordination. She's the first woman to ever win an Emmy for stunts yes. on GLOW season one. Um, she um, and Chavo kind of work it out. And Chavo, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's, he's like this, like, he's like wrestling royalty. Like, his grandfather was a luchador. His father was a professional wrestler. His, his, wow. his um, uncle, like, he's, like, from this, like, dynasty of professional wrestlers. And he just has it, like, so in his blood, like, he can, like, put together a wrestling match, like, in five minutes, the way, like, a really veteran TV writer can, like, break a story. <laughs> like, Chubb is like, okay, so we're going to open with this move. We're going to open with the Boston Crab. And then we'll do it. Like, and it's yeah, just, like, yeah. he just can sketch it out. And he also knows exactly, like, what the story is going to be. Like, I remember being by the monitors with another one of the writers once. Um, and we had a script out. It was, I don't know if you guys saw, I don't know if you watched Glow or not, but, um, it was in season two and episode eight where it's sort of the show within a show. I, I co-wrote that episode and um, and and there was a it was like supposed to be Liberty Bell and you know um, Vicky the Viking had stolen her daughter and locked her in a safe and she it's was fighting with her to get the combination to the safe <laughs> and Chavo was like, and I was thinking it would be great if, like, right when Liberty Bell's like on the rope, she like reaches into her leotard and she pulls out a picture of her daughter, and then Vicky the Viking rips it out of her hands and rips it up in front of her face and throws it at her. We're like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> like, like he, like he, they, he just has all those like moves, like all the like yeah. heel moves and all the like ways that like a, the dynamics of a match work so much, you know, better than any of us do. That like you kind of. We kind of leave those to him. <laughs> oh, man. That's so rich. But it's very much like working with a choreographer. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess if you're writing something that has a dance number or something in it, you don't write step by step. You right. sort of like write your idea of what you want it to look like, and then the people whose job it is to yeah. put that together do it for you. I mean, it's kind of like anything. 
And do the fight choreographers, are, do they come in early? Do they see the script early? You write and give it to them? Are you in, are you in I mean, conversation I, with them usually? Yes. I think Liz and Carly usually give them a heads up um, before the script is distributed about, like, this one has a lot of wrestling in it, so and it's going to be probably like these two and these these girls and these girls, you know, like mm -hmm. who's going to be in it. So so they can kind of start trying some moves out. Because we really try, and one thing they're, they're so great at on that show is kind of playing to the strengths of all of our girls who have all learned to wrestle and are all amazing. Like before mm -hmm. we started shooting season one, I think they had like eight weeks of just learning how to wrestle just yes. in the ring without like anything else on it, but just like learning the moves and learning how to fall and learning how to like all that stuff. I didn't get to ever get to try anything out in the ring during that time because I was I had just found out I was pregnant, so I was not allowed to <laughs> wrestle. <laughs> wrestle. Um, no but uh, I did not want to. <laughs> I could barely stand. <laughs> but um, but so they had had all this. They had this like you know strong foundation of these wrestling moves, and now honestly, after like like three years, four years, they're so good at it. They some of them could like almost. Be wrestlers and and yes. others are less strong but mm -hmm. but they all have things they're great at and then they all have things that they're like you know less great at so like they really kind of choreograph the matches to make them look good unless yeah. they're not supposed to look good which yeah. is sometimes the case too so like you know they all have kind of the way that they like to follow a move that like this one excels at but this one isn't so great at so you give it to her and then you give the other one a different you know it's, mm -hmm. it's all kind of tailored to the actress's strengths What's it like to grow with a show? So going in from the beginning, you've been there several years. Do you feel any pressure to, to, to bring a freshness to your point of view, or do you feel, feel a lot less pressure? I mean, I, I do think it helps sometimes to have new writers in the room to just kind of shake it up and to bring in like voices that you hadn't, you know, we know these characters so well at this point, and that is both a strength and sometimes a weakness. You yeah. can get a little bit in a rut, or like you get a little bit maybe caught up in what you thought their arc was season one, and maybe it's not really that anymore, the way that the character has evolved, because they do kind of become their own people. Yeah. And you have to sort of keep yourself open to letting them do things that maybe you didn't imagine for them earlier on. Um, so I do think we feel like a certain amount of pressure. I mean, I know Liz and Carly do certainly at the beginning of every season that this, you know, you always want to make this season the best season that you've ever made. And mm -hmm. if you stop feeling that way, then it's probably time to end the show. Right. <laughs> um, you know, you want to you want to keep things fresh. You want to keep things fun. You want to do things you've never done before. Right now we're in season four and we know it's going to be our last season. Which is sad, but it's also great because so often you don't know that it's going to be the last season. And so I feel like we're really able to kind of like work towards that, like really give it a proper ending and kind of give things like be like, this is our last chance to do this thing we've always wanted to do. Like this is, you know, like you kind yeah. of, it can be kind of valedictory in a way. And, and also you can actually like end it in a satisfying way instead of leaving it on some sort of half-assed cliffhanger that you're hoping means they won't cancel it, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but I, I do feel like, the, the, I feel like what has really grown for me, more than like the creative process of it, although that is certainly a huge part of it, is just the collaboration of it, you know, that like so much of your life becomes lived with these people and with this show and with this show as the backdrop. You know, Carly and I both had babies, um, people have gotten married, people have had spectacular breakups. 
Um, I've really gotten to know all the actors quite well, most of them, and like, you know, your relationships with them kind of deepen and evolve, and that then affects the way that you write their characters sometimes, you know, because you've oh, yeah. gotten to see this other side of them, or you're like, I think she could do this, and we haven't done that for her yet, you know? Yeah. Um, you really do all kind of live your life together in a certain way, and I think because of that, um, the show gets deeper and richer. And the nice thing on Glow is that everyone still pretty much likes each other. I mean, I think on some shows, like these relationships can become very rancorous because of the closeness, mm -hmm. but um, that hasn't happened to us. At least it hasn't happened to me. <laughs> Glow has great characters. Is there, a, is there a secret to developing a great character, a character that can last? Or is there something that interests you when you're developing a character? I just like characters to have an element of surprise to them and by that I mean I like it I like to create someone that I feel like can surprise me the way that like people surprise you that you think you really know somebody or you know, think they're this kind of person and then you find out something about them that you never would have guessed like mm. I like that kind of thing and I feel like with Glow and I, I, I think that you know I think that there are shows that can kind of tip over too far into that direction where like everyone is this exceptional weirdo with like some strange hidden skill or like some strange personal history and that <laughs> also feels very unbelievable to me but like I do feel like the characters on GLOW um, they're all just very specific and I think that the more specific about characters you can be and not too lazy about just like well they're this kind of person so they're just going to say this kind of thing and make this kind of joke and have this kind of dialogue and everything's going to be about that. I, I feel like there's a lot of characters sometimes on television who just sort of constantly tell you the one thing about themselves is how they were conceived. Like this character's a womanizer, so literally every line he has is about like babes, you know, or like whatever <laughs> yeah. it is. But like, and I think that if, if you have a character who presents that themselves that way, the interesting question then to ask is, is why? Like, yeah. like if you really just think about them as real people and the way that you sort of, I mean, I tend to sort of do that with people in my life where I'm like, this is the face that they want to show the world. Why is that the face? Why, why is this the way that they present themselves to me? Why, is this, why are these the things they talk about? Why is this the way that they express themselves? And to really dig into the motivation of why people seem the way they are is very interesting for me. I always say, my, the thing I am most interested in, I guess, as a writer, and I didn't really even realize this until maybe like six months ago, um, like, or I had not like put it into words, but. For me, everything interesting exists in the space between who we are and who we think we should be. Mm. And, and all the internal conflict, all stories, all these kind of bad decisions people make, or good decisions people make, or all those things, I think, happen in that space. Mm. And so I, I sort of ask myself that question, I guess, whenever I approach a character. That's such a beautiful way to talk about a want. <laughs> you know, like, you know, this what should I be? And what am I willing to do to get to it? I'm very interested in that. So let's talk a little bit about scenes and what it is to write a scene. Because, of course, as an actor and then a playwright, you have a natural sense, I'm sure, of what makes a scene dynamic and, and what makes two characters really in conflict with each other. But when you came into television and you started writing scenes... My, oh, they were all way too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how long? I mean, I, I'm always saying that too because we, we bring in scenes and we have professional actors read them of their work, which is such a beautiful experience, everyone's work. And I'm always saying like two to three pages, two to three pages, and there's always this feeling, can we have more? Should it be more? But so yeah. much happens. It really shouldn't. Much, right? <laughs> I, know. It rare, I feel like it rarely works, you know? And I think, 
And I think that some of it is just because as television viewers, we are trained to consume television in a certain way. And like you've, I mean, like however long, however many hours of your life you spent writing, reading books or looking at great art or doing anything, you've spent more watching television. Like we all, yeah. <laughs> we all know what an episode of television feels like and how long it feels or how short it feels. And, and I feel like we all just have that framework inside of that if a scene is too long, you just feel it. And, mm -hmm. and I do all, like, I've been in editing in post on the Babysitter's Club and there are scenes that were not longer than three pages and I'm watching them in editing and I'm like, no, we have to lift like four lines from the scene because it just feels too long. Like you just, you just feel it. Like it's just there, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but that said, it's like you need a scene to accomplish what it, what it needs to accomplish and if you structure the episode prop properly um, you shouldn't have a lot of scenes that aren't doing something and it's not always a scene that has to be a major story point or has to really be like pushing the plot engine along in like a very like you know kind of like by the book sort of way but maybe it's a scene that has an incredibly important character moment that is going to reveal something about this character that we really need to know or or something that is just so delightful that it will kind of perk everybody up. I mean, I really do think that I, I'm not I'm not such a stickler for structure that everything has to be like. Right. But um, but I do think you need to think, ask yourself like why is this scene here and what is the most what is the most efficient way to make that scene happen and to accomplish that goal? Like what is the ambition of the scene and what is the best, clearest, cleanest shortest way to do that yeah. and then after that it's like well how do I zhuzh it up <laughs> yeah, I love that the ambition of the scene shortest clearest way to do it and then you can zhuzh then you can zhuzh yeah. um, when I first started trying to write for television I, I have a very good friend Richard Kramer who's a sort of veteran TV writer he was an executive producer on 30 something and um, he wrote the original Tales of the City and oh. um, and he said a thing to me that I thought was so smart and I have never forgotten, which is that you want to have one delight for every three quarters of a page. Oh. And that can be like a really delightful joke. It can be a really fun thing that happens. It could just be like a, like in just something, something that delights you. Hmm. And that can, and that can mean whatever it means to you. It doesn't have to be funny or sweet. It could be horrible, you know, but like yeah. <laughs> just the thing that you can't wait to hear or see. That's so fantastic. Speaking of mentors, I was thinking about so David Cromer, who's a director and is in New York now, obviously, doing beautiful things, winning MacArthur Fellows and such, mm -hmm. was um, one of my mentors. And I remember when I, was, uh, when I was young and I was learning from him as a director, he would always say, he said one day that someone had told him that the first day you walk into a rehearsal room that you're leading, you should give a speech because that speech is going to set the tone for the whole process. And he was like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> no, I'm going to think that every time I walk into a room. So now you're showrunner. It's day one. You're walking in the room. Did you think about how to set the tone for that room? I mean, I'm so not the kind of person that could authentically give a speech that will <laughs> set the tone for the room that I like. I, I would say if you are the kind of person who feels compelled to give a speech to set the tone for the room, you should absolutely do that. Yeah. If you're like, fuck, I have to give a speech, you yeah. should not. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I think that the best thing you can do as a leader, and this is certainly something that I felt over the course of showrunning and, and also just in the sort of times that I've had to like, you know, run the room in someone's absence or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, the best thing you can be is just yourself. I mean, like this sort of authenticity of who you are and the way that you want it to feel and the way that you want to communicate with people is kind of 
the best thing you can do. I mean, if your authentic self is like a fucking major asshole, <laughs> like that will become apparent clearly. <laughs> but, um, but in general, I, I think that, you know, I don't remember if I gave a little speech. I mean, I think I told everybody how excited I was to have them there and that they had all, I really thought that the, I had assembled such a great room. And, and I, I do remember saying a couple of things that I was like, I just want you to know this about me so that you don't obsess over it because um, I have been in rooms where the showrunner doesn't do this and then you obsess over this like tick of theirs and what it means about how they feel about you or if you're getting credit for this or you're getting, I was just like, I, I was like, I think I said something that I was like, I just want you to know, I will not remember who pitched what. I just don't. It's like a sort of, I have a sort of blinders about it. Like I'll hear mm -hmm. it, but I want, so if I repeat something that you said or we pick up the pitch and I'm not like, oh, but Kanisha's pitch, it's, I'm not keeping score. It doesn't right. matter. Like I've been in rooms where like, it's really all about like counting how many of your pitches you get on the board or how many jokes of yours you get in the script or whatever. and feeling, you know, terrible if like somebody else got credit for the thing that you pitched or whatever. And I was just like, I just want you guys to know that like this room is not like that. And also like, I won't know. So, yeah. <laughs> so please don't like worry that I didn't notice you or that I didn't like just relax. I can imagine there's some relief in that because then you can really just keep the idea. Yeah, I mean, flowing. look, you say these things and then like people don't believe you. <laughs> but like I, I can only control what I can control. <laughs> I'm not responsible for everybody's neurotic yeah. spiraling. Yes, which we all have in us to do, right? <laughs> Including my own. <laughs> well, let's talk about, you said assembling the room. That was going to be my next question, actually. When you were assembling the room, we don't have to talk about people specifically, but was there something, were there things you knew you wanted from writers or did people inspire you and you were like, I gotta have that? It's a little bit of both, honestly. I mean, I, I, I felt like I had a sort of rough sketch of who I needed in terms of like experience and support, just knowing like what was ahead. And mm -hmm. I think most, I think most rooms, a showrunner, I think particularly a first time showrunner, really want to have like a very strong upper level number two. Um, you know, like somebody that you really trust, somebody that you feel is really on your wavelength, is really like getting the voice of the show and is very experienced and capable. Because the truth is as a showrunner, especially on a first season show, but even beyond, you're constantly pulled out of the room for things. You know, you have to like meet, you have to get on the phone with all these possible ADs and that takes all day. You know, you have like all these like preliminary meetings all the time. You have to like you've got to hire everybody like there's just a lot of things going on and there's a lot of moving parts and so you really want to have somebody that you can be like okay can you just keep breaking the story well and I'll be back in an hour you know like right. like so somebody who's it's helpful to have one or two kind of upper level people that have really done this before um, that you know that when you come back in the room two hours later there will be something on the board and whether you like it or not or like you need to make changes to it or not is kind of immaterial but the fact that like the work has been done and that mm -hmm. there's something something tangible to show for it is was really valuable to me so I knew that I needed that mm -hmm. um, and you know I think also like everybody wants to give chances to these like fresh exciting new staff writers and I did too but you also you know you need people to be like but I also know that like someone can give me a draft that I could shoot even if it's not perfect and right. that is not always the case with staff writers and and um, and that's okay you know it's an, it's I feel like it's become this sort of like um, vaunted like goal but 
being a staff writer initially, like before becoming a television writer, became this like thing. It's an entry level job. Like you're mostly there to listen and learn and learn how a room works and learn how to pitch in a room and learn how to break a story. And because there really is like a way to do it. And I don't think anybody knows how to do it the first time that they are in a room. They just don't. And, you know, I think that there are people who pick it up faster than others. I think that there are people who have are, are just a little more like adept or a little faster to learn. Mm -hmm. But um, but it's something that you, I mean, I wasn't good at it when I started. Like, you have to, like, learn it. So, you know, you if you have a staff writer, you want to make sure that they are, or a two staff writers even, you have to make sure that there's enough people around them that they can learn for, that they're not being asked to do so much heavy lifting that, like... That you set they, them up. You want to, exactly, exactly. Because, like, they're not going to know what they're doing, and you have to sort of know that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, that said, I think that, like... Staff writers who have never, you know, who are new to the business and kind of are excited and hungry can be incredibly valuable just in terms of bringing like fresh perspectives and ideas. And they're not so jaded and they're not so like, ah, eh, we did it on Grey's Anatomy, you know, like yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like yeah. it's nice to be around people that are exciting and excited and inspired by what you're doing. Um, so I think that, you know, for me, the best rooms I've been in have had kind of a mixture of upper levels and lower levels and certainly a mixture of um, perspectives. You know, it's it's not really that fun to be in a room where everybody is like, you know, a certain kind of person with a certain kind of background and a certain kind of perspective on everything. It's I find it much more fun when people have diverse life experiences and, um, you know, it's it's really tricky though because then then sometimes then it takes longer for the room to kind of coalesce as one and when you don't have a lot of time um that can be challenging mm -hmm. you know if it takes like six or seven weeks for you to just get comfortable with each other but it's yeah. a 10 week room that's hard yes. um and i i think that that is why this sort of conversation about like you know diversity in rooms and all that stuff is it's like everybody has to expand their comfort zone mm -hmm. and be able to be comfortable with lots more kinds of people faster <laughs> and more mm -hmm. thoroughly. For um, the sake of the work. For so the, the sake work of the work. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I think that that can also sometimes be a challenge and people, you know, tend to err on the side of caution in Hollywood. You know, it's why studios just make superhero movies because they know they'll make money, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's... Um, so, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I've never been in a room that was perfect. I've never been in a room where I'm like every single person is absolutely like, there's always kind of, I, I also, but I, you know, I've been in ones that were pretty close. And I, I mean, it, and look, not everybody is going to be the absolute right fit for everything. And just because you kind of aren't the right fit in one room does not mean you will not be perfect in another room in the star right. of the next room you're in. Mm -hmm. Like, it's such a like complicated social dynamic and it's not even one you can predict as the showrunner before you get in the room because honestly you hire these people and you've had like one half hour meeting with them right. it's like you, you and you're like am I going to spend the next like 20 weeks of my life in an incredibly high pressure situation like hanging out with you yes. nine ten eleven hours a day like it's it's a little it's you have to you know it's a little bit of an act of faith so you have to just kind of see if you get a feeling about this person or not quickly and it's not always right and that's fine, you know? Yeah. I haven't been the right person in rooms before. I've had people in rooms I was in who weren't the right person and I was, and that's just kind of part of the job and you have to just sort of like, you know, not everyone's for everyone. Yeah. You said, you talked about when a staff writer's in the room, they're gonna need to learn to break story and the art of breaking story. I mean, is there advice that you'd give 
us about the art of breaking story, like how you can be that helpful person in the room? Um, yes. Um, I think a mistake that a lot of new writers make early on in the room is that they do too much work out of the room. Mm. Which is like they go home, they, you want so much to be like an A-plus student and do a great job and you come back with all these like pitches that you've prepared overnight and you bring them into the room and you're so excited to pitch them and then they have nothing to do with like the story that is like happening. Like it mm. really is, it's like improv, you know? It's like you just kind of have to be able to like drop whatever you came in with and, and just go you know, with whatever whoever is talking about and be able to kind of yes and it. Or, nice. or, or if you don't like it and you really think it's a mistake, you have to be able to really articulate why and have another idea, you know. Mm -hmm. But like there's usually an area that you're discussing and bringing in a lot of things that like aren't, don't really relate to it is sort of can really like turn people off to you. And I think that often that comes from this wanting to do a good job where mm -hmm. you're like, but I had this idea and I think it was really good. And when I typed it out on my little paper the night right. before, like, um, and I, in a weird way, I feel like it, it's a sort of an ideal environment for somebody like me who was a terrible student who never <laughs> succeeded in doing homework. Um, <laughs> same, 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 same. <laughs> like, who's always kind of like coming unprepared for everything I've ever done, including this. But clever and smart and able to roll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not too attached to anything. Yeah. It's just like I just thought of it. Um, so, you know, I think, I mean, obviously it's like, that said, I do think it's really helpful to like immerse yourself in a related material because you never know where an idea will come from. You know, I think that like, for example, when we were starting Glow, like just reading a lot of stuff about the 80s, like watching a lot of movies from the 80s, yeah. like kind of remembering our own childhoods and things like that um, was really useful because you just could kind of like conjure up the world of it that way and if you really can kind of immerse yourself into it so that kind of thing I think is really useful but it, it is but I mean also like just in terms of like what I, I just I remember saying once in the room I was like I just feel like in the 80s though when you think about it like candy was such a big deal right like everyone was so crazy about candy and it was all and then I was like no I was just a child <laughs> It wasn't like, like a major yes, cultural point <laughs> in the 80s. It was just that I was a child, so like 75% of my waking hours were about obtaining candy. And what was that other kind of candy? Like, so, you know, it's there's. <laughs> oh my God. I was totally like, yes, can yes, it was. Like candy was such a big deal. It's like all anybody talked about. <laughs> Look, like I, candy and the Iran Contra scandal. I, I stand by. I think that's correct. Come on. Yeah. So uh, let's let's just talk a little bit about Babysitters Club and talking about the '80s and bringing back <laughs> speaking like childhood our, our feelings and our childhood <laughs> and the books that we carried around with us and loved so much. What's it like to take a book and not just adapt it, but adapt it for TV, like in a series of books? Um, was there an in for you that you were like, this is this is how I'd like? Well, to I mean, it? the in for me was that I was so obsessed with the Babysitters Club as a child, like. I mean, I read all of them, and and I could remember everything about them. And my friends and I used to like trade them on the playground, and we would like yes. play Babysitters Club, and we tried to have a Babysitters Club, and like, I mean, it was so to get to do this, like, like the day that we cast the girls, like we had like the final tests for them, and we did the mix and match. Where you, uh, do you guys know what that is? It's like, Tell us. it's um, 
it's usually after you've watched a lot of casting tapes and gone through all the callbacks and all that stuff, especially when you're casting something like this that's about like a group and like a group mm -hmm. dynamic. You do something called a mix and match where you kind of get everybody together, you fly them in, you know, if you have to, um, and you have sort of like two or three choices for each role and you just kind of mix them up in different combinations. Um, and we kind of knew, and then you kind of know, you kind of see them together, you kind of see how they interact together, how their energies kind of mesh. And, um, and you know, we did this thing where we had kind of settled on the final five girls, and I was like, I want to tell them, can we tell them? And the cast manager was like, okay. And we like made sure all the other ones had like gone home, and we're like, oh, we didn't manage to, there wasn't film in the camera. <laughs> 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 so like, not film, you know, whatever. So it didn't record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 80s. The 80s are very present in the room right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the celluloid wasn't real, probably. <laughs> we, <laughs> um, we like, so we, everyone was gone, and then we had them like do the scene again, and then, and then I was like, congratulations, you guys are the Babysitter's Club, and they all screamed and cried, and I started crying. It was like, it was like in the like oh top five moments of my life. Like it was really, like getting to like pick the Babysitter's Club and tell them was like unbelievable. We were all crying, all the producers, all, everybody. It was like, it was really, the parents came in. I remember just seeing like the, and they were like told them like, we got it. I could see like the parents were also happy, but also there's just this like palpable relief that they were not gonna have to like fly back to Florida <laughs> with like their distraught <laughs> 12 year old. Yes. It was like just a loss yes. the role of a lifetime. Yes. You know? It was like, it was, it was great. But um, where was I? Oh, so that kind of thing, that, it, that, that stuff has just been like, on, like I'm still kind of pinching myself that these characters that were so like iconic throughout my childhood are like, characters that I get to affect. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think that was really my in. I mean, the way it kind of came together was just, you know, once you've been doing this for a while, you're kind of on like lists people have. You know, mm -hmm. there's like executives that like you or you, people that feel like you have the right voice for a project. Um, and this project had kind of come together in an interesting way. Um, Lucy could, basically Lucy Katata, who is the, um, Mike DeLuca's executive at the time at his company, um, had wanted to do this forever. She found a partner in Walden Media who bought, the, who had the rights to the books. And then Lucia Aniello, who's another EP, who's the director, um, had been kind of independently wanting to do this. Mm. Uh, and um, so they all kind of came together. And then I was sort of the, you know, the last piece of the puzzle, I think, I think. Um, and it kind of all just sort of came together that way. But um, Lucy, excuse me. Lucy and I, you can edit that out, my belch. Um, <laughs> Peruvian food plantain belch. Um, Lucy and I were friends and had, you know, wanted to do something together for a long time. So I was, oh, I'm always, and you know, I mean, like professional friends, but yeah. friends. I mean, we are friends, but you know what I mean. And so, you know, I think it, it's like, I know people are always like, it's who you know. And it is, but it's also like how you know them. Yeah. You know, like. I feel like there's nothing wrong with like, I mean, even like Liz and Carly, who are my friends on GLOW, the reason that we were friends is because we were all in the first Ars Nova play group together, you know? So it's yeah. like you come and in that play group was also, you know, in our first group, we were like the founding members also in that group was Lin-Manuel Miranda and Liz Merriweather and Bill Williman wow. and like, it's crazy. Wow. <laughs> Stephen Levinson. Yeah, work. it was bizarre. <laughs> 
Um, but I mean, it's like I do feel like you find yourself though in these spaces where everybody is ultimately going to wind up doing something interesting, and you're all friends and you're all in this space together because you're all going to wind up doing something right. interesting. So because like because you're pursuing so that, you're because you're pursuing that, and because like you, so like you know. It, it can feel a little like networky, but it's like the good kind. You yes, know? It's absolutely. Like, it's not like, well, I'm so and so's cousin, and the, you know, or yeah. whatever it is. It's not. It's less. It's less nepotism than it is like really thinking about like who your colleagues are and who are going to be your colleagues throughout your entire career. Yeah, and who whose work has excited you and yeah. who you've been waiting to see to be in a room and do. I I, I actually love I love networking at its core when you're talking about what you're talking about. Yeah. Which is this authentic connection, people who are passionate about what they do and do it in these really different interesting ways and you're like, how do we put this magic together and make this new thing? Yeah, and I do think that if you stick around long enough, ultimately you'll wind up working with everybody that you've ever wanted to work with. I mean, you just, you will. Like, there's a reason that you want to work with them. It's because you share some kind of sensibility or affinity for certain things. Yeah. And you sort of know, like, when you fit into somebody's world. Like, if there is a show, like I always say, if there's a movie or a show or something like that, that you love so much that, like, it's, like, inside you, when you eventually meet the person that made it, they're going to love you it's because true. you're like the same kind of person. <laughs> so true. You know? I've had, so, yes. Yeah, so like it's, it's um, you know, it's a good kind of networking, it's I guess. good kind of networking. <laughs> oh, you're so great. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question, okay. but, I'm, but don't answer it right away. You're going to get to think while I do some thank yous, okay. and then we'll come back and we'll end on you. Okay. Um, and I think for this one, I really want to look at what advice you would give to the room about approaching the page, like a uh, writing advice, what it is to sit down and write something. So I'll let you think about that. Um, and I want to thank our executive director, I see her in the back, Roseanne Welch. Hello, Roseanne. <laughs> I want to thank Joseph Welch, our producer. Thank you for all that you do, Joseph. We appreciate it so much. Uh, Thank you, Jim Henson Studios. Thank you um, to our founding director, Ken Lezevnik. We love you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so many good things. And the Trebek Foundation, who's been so supportive of the work that we do. And now I'm going to come back to Rachel. Hello again. <laughs> Here's some um, advice. Some advice in approaching the page. I mean, I think my advice is to remember that you can always erase anything that you write. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I feel like it can feel so intimidating sometimes to just get started, but you're never going to get to the end unless you start. <laughs> and the sooner you start, the sooner it's over. <laughs> um, but you know, there's really, but, but, but when you're writing it, the only person that's seen it is you. Nobody's judging it. Nobody's figuring out if it works or not. Nobody is like counting how many pages a scene is. Nobody is like, mm -hmm. Nobody's like doing all the rules that, you know, I feel like a lot of times screenwriting programs kind of tell you you have to follow. Like, there's no rules. Like, you just need to figure out what you want to say and what you're doing. And the only way to do that is to just like type. I actually have a really good friend um, who always calls it just typing, not writing, because he feels like writing puts too much on it emotionally. Mm. So you'll be like, oh, do you want to have dinner tonight? He's like, oh, I have to do some typing. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that. it's a really useful way to think about it sometimes. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's just typing. Oh, thank <laughs> you so much, Rachel. We're all going to go do some typing this evening. Yeah, and yeah, we're so typing. glad you were here. Let's hear it for Rachel. <laughs>